Um, I want to begin this morning by talking a little bit about uh, worldviews and how our, our worldviews work and how the Psalms in particular, and then we'll focus in on Psalm 110, how they, how they are intended, the Psalms are intended to reinforce and shape our worldviews and to reinforce and shape our expectations and our hopes and our understanding of who we are. So to get at this, I want to tell you about this news article that I recently read. Uh, I didn't bring it with me, but it would be easy to find. The title was something like, Dating Columnist Reveals How Sex in the City Ruined Her Life. So this was a woman who was a dating columnist. And, I mean, I didn't watch the show Sex in the City, but I found this article fascinating. And um, what, she was, what she was discussing in this article was the way that as a young woman just out of college, she moved to New York City and she patterned her life after the main character of that show, Sex and the City. So the main character of that show, I learned from this article, was a dating columnist. This woman became a dating columnist. And then you can just fill in all the details. What this woman understood as success, what this woman understood as the glamorous life, what this woman understood as uh, a successful date or the kind of man that she wanted to date. Everything about her value system, her understanding of her purpose in life, all of that was informed by this show, Sex and the City. And it's tragic. It is so sad that she now says, she's now in her late 30s, early 40s, this woman, and she now says, it would have been so much better for me to get married and stay married. So, you know, she just, she, she lived that lifestyle and she lived the opposite of that. And, and she's telling us, now I want to piece this out for us or, or take it apart piece by piece. She got her overarching story from that show. Now her story from the show, it didn't go all the way back to the beginning, but it, but it was nevertheless a sort of master controlling narrative that informed her life. And, and she derived it from that show. She also got her truths, or we might say her doctrines from that show. The show told her what was right and wrong. The show told her what was good and evil. The show, with the doctrines, also came behaviors, because your, your story is going to inform your understanding of right and wrong, and it's going, to understand your, it's going to inform your understanding of how you ought to live. And all of this she got from the show. And with this also, with these things, so you've got an overarching story, a master narrative, we might call it a meta-narrative, and then from that story you're going to derive truths and doctrines, we might say theological points, something like that. We're also going to, de to derive our understanding of how we ought to live, and then with it also are going to be these reinforcing symbols and this imagery. And what the symbolism and the imagery do is they reinforce, they retell, and they summarize, and they interpret the story. So the music that this woman listened to, it fit right with the narrative and the values and the lifestyle that was being promulgated by that show. And so her whole life was being reinforced by the symbolism that she surrounded herself with, the music that she filled her mind and her days with, and, and then the, the people around her, all of whom said, yes, this is the normal way to live. 
And, and when you have a group of people who agree on what's normal, you have a group of people who are forming a culture. So the Bible, the Bible is giving us an overarching story. It's giving us a master narrative. It begins in creation, and it's going to extend to the new creation, and it's going to go, it goes through the fall, through redemption, and then ultimately uh, the renewal of all things. Uh, so that we've got this overarching story. The Bible is also uh, deriving truths from that overarching story. For instance, when God brings the, man, the, the woman to the man in the garden, a conclusion is drawn at the end of Genesis chapter 2. When, when the text says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So unlike other religions, I was in, I was in India earlier this year, and we were talking about these things, and the guy that was translating for me, he's a pastor in a city called Lucknow, and this pastor, as I'm saying this, this is what I said, Christianity doesn't latch on to a truth and then make up a story to explain it. Now, a lot of liberal Bible commentaries, that's the way they want to explain the stories in the Bibles. They, they want to say that these are etiological myths or, you know, myth stories that explain some truth that people have latched onto. Unlike other religions, Christianity doesn't do that. Christianity holds that there's a true story and we've derived uh, truths from the story. And, and my pastor friend said to me, he said, that's exactly what they do in Hinduism all the time. They, they come up with some truth and then they want to make up some new story to explain that truth. So you have this overarching story, you're deriving truths from the story, and you, you are also getting behaviors from the story. And then you have symbolism and imagery that reinforces the story. So here's why I'm telling you all this. The Psalms are about the story. The Psalms are about the story. In other words, you should not read the book of Psalms without reference to the rest of the Old Testament. The Psalms are the poetry that is intended to reinforce and summarize and interpret the narrative of the Old Testament. Okay, so um, I, I want to take you to, before we dive into Psalm 110, I want to take you briefly to two passages that I think set us up to see what is happening in Psalm 110. So if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, this may be something that you're entirely familiar with and you don't need me to go over, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over it just in case because I think it is so important. In my opinion, Deuteronomy 4 verses 25 through 31 is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament for understanding the whole of the Old Testament. Moses says to Israel here, When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So let's just get the context of this. The people of Israel are encamped on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan River to take the land of promise. And Moses tells them, if you go into that land and you start committing idolatry, you're going to be driven out of the land. You're going to get exiled from the land. And then he says in verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him 
if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. There's so many fascinating things about this passage. One, did you notice how the if, if you go over there and start committing idolatry, becomes a when, when all these things come upon you. And then two, this is the rest of the Old Testament. This is what happens. They cross into the land in Joshua. They start committing idolatry in Judges. And then by the end of Kings, they're exiled from the land. And then in exile, they're hoping for the return. And then people like Daniel and Nehemiah, they're, they're doing exactly what this passage talks about. They're seeking the Lord, and then they're, they're eventually restored to the land. But really, this restoration to the land is about something deeper. Because the land of Israel is a symbol of an earlier land, the land of Eden. It's, it's like God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to enjoy his presence, Adam sinned and was driven out of the garden. And so it's like God said, okay, let's try this again. So he takes the nation of Israel and he puts them in his land and he gives them the tabernacle and then the temple. And the whole point is he's going to dwell with his people and they're going to enjoy his presence. But just like Adam, they get driven out of the land. And now in the book of Ezra, we narrate how they come back to the land of promise, but they don't get back to the land of Eden. That awaits the coming of Christ. So it's, it's like we've got two exiles, an exile from, from Eden and then an exile from the land of promise. We've got one historical return from exile back to the land of promise, but we're waiting on the ultimate return from exile, which will be when the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven and God's people live in God's presence and enjoy His glory forever. So that's the big story of the Bible, and, and what I'm I'm going to skip the other passage, and we're going to go to the Psalms. What I, what I want to show you is how the Psalms are retelling that story. So um, we're going to pick this up at the end of Psalm 106. You're probably aware. Uh, I was listening to your pastor on the way here this morning, and I was thinking to myself, this is a well-taught church. So I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that you guys are, are very familiar with the Psalms. And, and so you're probably aware that the Psalms are divided into five books, and at the end of each book, there's a doxology. And, and I would suggest to you, and I'm not the only person saying these kinds of things, but I would suggest to you that there's a kind of impressionistic storyline that moves through the Psalms. So you start with the life of David, and, and David is suffering all through book one, and then at the end of book one, 37 of the first 41 Psalms are Psalms of David, and then the first Psalms of Book 2 are Psalms of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were put in the charge of the worship of God at the tabernacle after the ark rested there. So David put these guys over the ark. David brought the ark into Jerusalem once he had become king. And so I think this creates the impression that David has been, he's been persecuted by Saul, and now he's become king, and he's installed as king. And, and then at the end of Book 2, the last words of Psalm 72 are, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That's Psalm 72, verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. That doesn't mean there aren't more Psalms of David later, but I think it creates the impression that now we're done with the historical David. Another, another feature, another factor of this is, you know, those, those historical superscriptions that tell us about 
where this particular psalm fit in David's life, like uh, when he fled from Absalom, his son, something like that, Psalm 3-1. Those are largely, in fact, 12 of the 13 of them are in books 1 and 2, Psalms 1 through 72. So it creates the impression that when we move into book 3, Psalm 73 through 89, we're now uh, in in the lives of David's sons, and Psalm 89 reads as though the temple has been destroyed. So, so I, I would suggest to you that the Psalter is largely tracking with the history of Israel once David becomes king. It's, it's loose, it's impressionistic, it's not like a history book, it's poetry, but nevertheless it creates this impression. And it's interesting, in Psalm 89, um, there's this plea that, that God, he, he's saying, Lord, you made this covenant with David, your servant, and now you've cast him off and rejected him. Where is your steadfast love that you swore to David? And, and it's almost as though, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the burning down of the temple, it's almost as though um, um, the Davidic covenant is in danger of being nullified. And, and we've been in this kind of situation before, back in the book of, of Exodus and Numbers, when God said to Moses, Moses, I'm going to destroy Israel and start over with you. And, and you may remember that on those occasions, Moses interceded and said, no, Lord, don't do that. Don't, have concern for the glory of your name. What will they think about you down in Egypt? Don't do this to your people. And the Lord relents. Well, after uh, Psalm 89, that looks like the Davidic covenant is going to be nullified, there's a prayer of Moses, the man of God in Psalm 90. And he prays the very things in Psalm 90, verses 12 and 13, that he had prayed in Exodus 32, verse 13 and 14. Have mercy. Relent from your burning anger. Same, same kinds of things. And then look at Psalm 106. At the end of Psalm 106, so it's, here's what I'm suggesting. It's as though the people have been exiled from the land at this point. And look at what they pray at the end of Psalm 106. Verse 47, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So I'm suggesting to you that, that this prayer is prayed from the perspective of those who have been driven out of the land as a result of what Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 4. You go into the land, you commit idolatry, God's going to drive you into exile. And now in exile, they're calling on the Lord, save us and gather us in from the nations that you scattered us to. Now look at Psalm 107 the beginning of book 5, and look at verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. I think that these two psalms are set right next to one another on purpose. And what this the impression that this creates is we got exiled from the land, we, we sought the Lord just like Moses said we should, and now book five of the Psalter is written as though the hoped-for future redemption that will result in a return not merely to the historical land of promise but to God's presence in Eden, that is now underway. That is now what, what I, I, I'm suggesting to you that book five is written from the perspective of the future redemption that that Israel is hoping for. 
Um, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. And then there's this summary of the mighty acts of God on behalf of God's people that continues through Psalm 107. In Psalm 108, Psalm 108 is a fascinating psalm. Um, verses one, this is a psalm of David, okay? So I, I take these superscriptions. Jesus endorsed these superscriptions. Uh, Jesus attributed the psalms uh, that are attributed to David to, to David as though he, he wrote them. And so I think that's what happened. So this is a psalm that David wrote. But verses 1 through 4, sorry, verses 1 through 5, are essentially Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11, which is also a psalm of David. And then verses 6 through 13 are basically Psalm 60, verses 5 through 12, with only minor changes, which is also a psalm of David. So you've got these two psalms from David's life, Psalm 57 and Psalm 60. And what David does is he takes the end of the first one, Psalm 57, and the end of the second one, Psalm 60, and he puts them together in Psalm 108 to form a new psalm. And, and here's what, what I would propose is the reason he does this. David understands himself to be a type of the one to come. David understands what happened to me is what's going to happen to the, 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 the king that God promised to raise up from my line. So David understands the king that God has promised to raise up from my line, the kinds of things that happened to Joseph. Remember, Joseph got these dreams where the Lord was telling him, your brothers and your father and mother, they're going to bow down to you. And then his brothers, they persecute him. They sell him into slavery. But then after a, a long period of suffering, eventually Joseph is exalted as Lord. And sure enough, his brothers come and bow down to him. And then Moses. Um, Moses is raised up in the house of Pharaoh. And he's thinking, according to the book of Acts, that Israel is going to understand that God's going to use him to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. That's not what Israel's thinking. They reject him. He goes away out into the wilderness. He, he finds the priest of Midian, marries one of his daughters, but then eventually the Lord brings him back and uses him to deliver uh, Israel. And then David, um, the prophet Samuel, anoints David as king. And what happens? Saul starts trying to kill him, chasing him around the wilderness. And after a long period of time, eventually David is exalted as king. Over Now, I think David is thinking, this, this pattern keeps happening. It happened in my life. And I expect it to happen again in the future with, with the, the king that God has promised to me. So I think that David understands the way that he's an installment in this typological pattern. And then he's expecting more of this with reference to his descendant. So he takes these two psalms that are about his own historical experience, takes a bit from one and a bit from the other, and he projects them into the future. Now, let me, let me add in this. When, when Israel talks about the future redemption that's going to make it so that they can enter into the, the Garden of Eden and, and reclaim the land of promise. They talk about it in, in the terms and categories of the exodus from Egypt. So, and so the, the whole sequence of events that took place at the exodus, uh, the, re, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, the provision in the wilderness, and then the conquest of the land, all of those events are often projected onto the future, and this is the way that God is going to save us in the future, which is why Paul says things like 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. It's why um, 
when Jesus comes, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What they're doing is they're using the terms and categories of the Exodus from Egypt to interpret the redemption that God accomplishes through Christ. And then look at what happens. Look at Psalm 108. Look at verses 7 through 9. God is promised in His holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. So he's claiming this land. It's like Psalm 107, New Exodus Redemption. Now 108, New Conquest of the Land. And then Psalm 109 is a prayer of imprecation. Uh, this, I, think, I, don't, I don't remember the exact wording, but C.S. Lewis had awful things to say about this psalm. He, he, he said it was nasty that, that there's such a vindictive and hateful spirit in this psalm. Um, I, I think, though, that these psalms, these psalms of imprecations, what's happening in this, these psalms is a righteous sufferer, someone like David, this again is a psalm of David, is recognizing that person in rebelling against me and in betraying me, they're also betraying God. And, and that treachery cannot go unpunished. And so they're asking God to bring his righteousness to bear for the good of the world and for the good of that person. And what's interesting about this psalm, this prayer of imprecation, is that much of it is addressed about a, a particular uh, adversary. Verse 6, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Now, I'm, I'm going to propose the same thing about Psalm 109 that I proposed about Psalm 108. It, it's, it's as simple as this. David looks at his own life, and he says, I had people betray me. Absalom betrayed me, and then his counselor Ahithophel joined with Absalom and betrayed him. And I think he's expecting... This king that God has promised to raise up from my line, he's going to have people betray him. And I would propose to you that David wrote Psalm 109 and placed it where he did as a, as a, as a prayer to be prayed by his future descendant when that traitor comes. Look at verse uh, 8. May his days be few. May another take his office. You know where that's quoted? Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 with reference to Judas. They, they quote that when they go to select Judas's replacement. And, and I, I think that that indicates that uh, Peter and the others and Luke, who's writing Acts, they're understanding the function of Psalm 109 along the lines of what I'm suggesting, that, that David's experience of being betrayed prefigured the way that Jesus would be betrayed. And that brings us to Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 um, is strategically placed. So before we dive into Psalm 110, I'm just going to make an assertion about it, and then I want to show you what ripples out from it through the rest of Book 5 of the Psalter. So the, the assertion that I want to make about Psalm 110 is that this psalm is about the future conquest of the future king from David's line, the king promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This psalm is about the hope of Israel. Now watch what ripples out from this. Psalms 111 through 117, really 118, are often referred to as the Hallel Psalms because they, 
They begin and end in English with praise the Lord, which in Hebrew is hallelujah. So it's like Psalm 110 happens, and then these hallelujahs start ringing through Psalms 111 through 117. And then look at 118. After the, after the conquest of 110, um, verse 19, Psalm 118, verse 19, this individual says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Now, in the context of the Psalter, this is recalling those questions that were asked in Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? And it's like Psalm 118 is giving us the answer. And, and I think the suggestion is the future king from David's line can. After he conquers in Psalm 110, after we celebrate his victory in 111 through 117, now he comes and the gates of righteousness are opened to him so that he can enter through them. And then uh, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's quoted in the New Testament with reference to Jesus, I think confirming the, the way I'm approaching these things in this, in, in this session. And then... Um, Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. This is Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then the people who apparently are gathered at the temple, as, as the conquering king enters the city, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And you know that those words were quoted at the triumphal entry. And I would suggest to you that the triumphal entry is anticipating another triumphal entry when he will come in conquest to reign. Um, and then after Psalm 118, you get Psalm 119, which is this massive celebration of the goodness of God's Word. It, it's like the king conquers, he enters Jerusalem, and he establishes God's law as, as the rule of life for God's people in God's place. And then Psalms 120 through 134 are Psalms of Ascent. Or you could translate that Psalms of goings up. It's like the nations are streaming to Zion, just as Isaiah chapter 2 prophesies. And then you get some sort of final uh, celebrations like Psalm 135, the, the celebration of unity, uh, oil on Aaron's beard, 136, um, um, his steadfast love endures forever. And then 137, it, it, it's almost like it snaps us back into the present as they say, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. So these people, it seems that they're still in, in exile, and, and, and yet they've, they've rehearsed these future hopes through these psalms. And then there's this concluding section in 138 through 45 of Psalms of David before a final 146 through 50 crescendo of praise. Okay, with all that in place, Psalm 110. This is the pivotal psalm in the book of the Psalter. In the, whole, in the whole book, this is the pivotal psalm because this psalm finally is about the conquest of the future king. So if you ask me something like this, are you saying that the whole book of Psalms is about Jesus? Yes. Understood rightly. Yes. Because the whole book of Psalms is, is rehearsing God's mighty act, acts in the past and looking forward to God's mighty acts in the future, which are going to be accomplished by Jesus. That doesn't mean that he's mentioned in every line. It doesn't mean that he's necessarily even uh, the topic of discussion in every psalm. I mean, Psalm 51, as David repents of his sin, that's clearly uh, not specifically about Jesus, but, but what Jesus does is going to make it so that that repentance can 
uh, be accepted and so, Jesus, so David can be forgiven. Uh, but Psalm 110, let, let's look at it now and we'll see uh, the, the way that this psalm functions, I think, in the, in, the, in the book. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. Again, I take it to mean David wrote this. And look at what he says in verse 1. The Lord, and when you see those, you, I'm sure you know this, when you see those small caps, you've got that R, which is a capital R, and that D, which is a capital D, but they're shorter than the capital L at the beginning, that's telling you that the name Yahweh was here. Yahweh says to my Lord. So you've got God saying to David's Lord. Now, who is David's Lord? Well, this is what Jesus teased his contemporaries with, right? He said, uh, whose son is the Messiah? And they said, David's. And he said, well, then how, if he is David's son, how can he be David's Lord? And, and the, the, the authorities, the religious leaders, they're flummoxed, and the crowds are delighted at the way that Jesus can show these guys up. And, 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 and so the Lord says to David's Lord, that's clearly the, the king that God has promised to raise up from his line. And what he says to him is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look at the end of, of, verse thir- of uh, Psalm 109, verse 31. Let's, let's read verses 30 and 31. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands, the Lord stands, at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. What's going to happen to Jesus? His soul is going to be condemned to death. And then there are all these statements through the Psalms, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And then, so there's all this right hand stuff, and it kind of goes back and forth. Uh, David says in Psalm 16, and then that's quoted with reference to Jesus in the New Testament, because he is at my, right, at my right hand, God is at my right hand, and now the Lord is saying to David, you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look at the end of 108, 108.13. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So the enemies are going to be underfoot. Is there a place in the Bible that talks about somebody who's going to conquer by giving a head wound that seems to result in a heel wound? Yeah, Genesis 3.15. I think this, until I make your enemies your footstool, is a, is a very subtle allusion to that original promise in Genesis 3.15. Verse 2. Oh, um, note how in verse 1, it's the Lord speaking. You see the quotation marks after the Lord says to my Lord, then you've got a colon, and then quotation marks, and this is what the Lord says to, to the king from David's line. Now, David seems to speak. So it's like David he sees and hears the Lord say this to the future king from his line, and now David starts celebrating the king. It's, it's sort of like the way that um, if you're a sports fan like I am, 
and um, you see a great play made on television or if you're at the game, and you start talking to the people. You know, you, you start cheering them on. You start celebrating what's just happened, maybe in response to a sportscaster or something saying, this is the greatest play I've ever seen, and, you, and then you start talking to the players on the screen or on the field, you know? That, that's, that's kind of what's happening here where the Lord makes this astonishing declaration. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then David starts cheering on the future king from his line in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now what I want to invite you to do is activate your awareness of the Psalms. And you think to yourself, where do I have reference in the Psalms to Zion, God's holy hill, and to one ruling, let's say, with a rod of iron. I mean, I'm telling you what it is, right? So this is Psalm 2. Psalm, the promise in Psalm 2, you've got the nations raging in 2, 1 through 3. And then 2, 4, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. So now the one seated in the heavens, God, is saying to the one, he says in 2, 5, As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then... And then the king says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, rule in the midst of your enemies. He said, uh, no, sorry, that's this. He said to me, um, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession, you will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces with, like a potter's vessel. That promise in Psalm 2 is being activated here in Psalm 110. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. And there are other statements about scepters in the Bible, aren't there? Uh, Genesis 49, the scepter will not depart from Judah, uh, nor the ruler staff from between his feet. Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall arise in Jacob, a scepter in Judah. So all these, these promises are being evoked and activated. And, and David is cheering on the future king from his line. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. I think what David is saying here comes down to something like this. We are not going to need a draft. Nobody is going to be conscripted into the service of Jesus. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. I think what David is saying is, unlike every other human rule, I mean, think of David himself. David had apparently attracted to himself people from other nations, people like Uriah the Hittite. I mean, have you, have you thought about this? This guy, Uriah the Hittite, he was a Hittite who had become one of the mighty men of David. And then we know what David did to him. That is... That, that's the kind of thing, that, that episode is the kind of thing that creates cynicism. It's the kind of thing that creates reluctance to serve. Why would I want to serve that guy? Did you see the way that he treated those people? Why would I risk my life to defend him and his kingdom? And there will be none of that with the Lord Jesus. With the Lord Jesus, we can have this, this unhindered, unrestrained, wholehearted giving of ourselves. Literally what this says is something like, your people will make themselves free will offerings on the day of your power. 
So we will take our lives and we will make ourselves free will offerings. Not compelled, not required, not commanded. Here, take it. My whole life is a free will offering for you. If we understand the glory of Jesus, here's application for you. We've been at this for a long time now, and I haven't said anything that's directly applicatory, but here's application for you. If you see the glory of Christ, you will want to make yourself a free will offering. If you find in yourself reluctance to serve, I mean, I know how this works. Um, The church needs nursery volunteers. Um, Oh, man. I don't want to do that. No. If you, if you find yourself responding that way, there's a, let's say there's a church work day coming up. I don't know if you guys do this. We do this at our church. Uh, we're going to go get dirt under our fingernails, and we're going to go, uh, we're going to donate a Saturday to the church or how, however it works here. If you find in yourself reluctance to that, what you need to do is meditate on the glory of Jesus. What you need to do is, is think to yourself, how will I feel when the day comes, the great day? The day when I'm going to look back at my life and and feel, I wish I had done so much more for him. I mean, it it doesn't have to be something related to the church. It could be something related to your family, something in your home, something with your spouse or with your kids or uh, with your neighbors or your roommates. Um, We're all going to wish we had been more Christ-like. We are all going to wish we had been more giving of ourselves. We are all going to wish that we had been less self-centered, less Less, less of a taker. We're, we're all going to wish that we had been more like Jesus. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Uh, this next line in verse 3 reads in the ESV, in holy garments. Um, um, I think the King James renders this, if I remember correctly, something along the lines of in the splendors of holiness. And, and it's this idea that, that those who give themselves to Christ are going to radiate themselves with glory. And, and I think the way this works is it's, it's what happened with Moses. Um, he goes up on Mount Sinai, he's beholding the glory of God, and he comes down and his own face is radiant. And, and Psalm 34 elaborates on this and it says, those who look to him are radiant. And Paul, over in Thessalonians, he says, he says something like, um, may our God make you worthy of his calling, uh, and may he fulfill every work of faith and every uh, resolve for good, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him. Those are words that are strange to me. We're going to be glorified in Jesus? Well, when you behold glory... 2 Corinthians 3, you're transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. I think this this verse 3 is talking about the same thing. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments or in the splendors of holiness. And then this line, from the womb of the morning. I think it's getting at the freshness of, of the early morning. And there are other places in the Bible that talk about how um, the, king, the coming of the king is going to be like the sunrise from on high. This new day is going to dawn. The dew of your youth will be yours. So the dew of the youth of his people will belong to the king. And that, that line, you know, as, as I get older um, and, and as, I, as, I, as I feel my bones creaking and I see um, 
the, I see my, the, li- the lines on my face deepening and my hair going gray. Um, youth and, and the, uh, the glory and the splendor of, of this, this unaged uh, young state becomes more apparent to me. And I think that's what this is talking about here. The dew of your youth will glorify Christ. So in verses 1 through 3, you've got the Lord saying, sit at my right hand, and then David responding in verses 2 and 3. Now the Lord speaks again in verse 4. And he says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now when you hear the phrase, the Lord has sworn, what other passages in the Bible does this call to mind? The Lord has sworn. Maybe from the book of Hebrews. You think of Hebrews, and, and you think of the Lord swearing by himself, right? Because he had no... Now, I think this is on purpose. I think David recognizes God swore an oath to Abraham, and God swore an oath to me. And those oaths are like each other. The promise to Abraham to bless the nations in him, to make him a great name, uh, to... to, to um, Bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. That promise is like the promise to David that God is going to raise up uh, a descendant of David and put him on the throne. And also, that, that, that particular, the, the incident in Genesis 15 with the, the smoking fire pot moving through the pieces is right after the incident with Melchizedek in uh, Genesis 14. So I think that contextual understanding of Genesis 14 and 15 is informing Psalm 110 verse 4 As David says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You'll remember that Melchizedek was both a a king and a priest. Um, God put Adam in the garden and and he said, let them have dominion, let them rule. That's kingly terminology. And he also, there are there are features of the narrative that indicate that Adam has priestly responsibilities. So I would suggest that even though Adam is not directly called a king and a priest, he exercises those roles. And then you've got this figure, Melchizedek, who's both king and priest. And then the nation of Israel. Remember what God said to Israel in Exodus 19? Uh, You will be to me a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom, royal, and priests. Well, uh, Adam failed. Melchizedek eventually died. Israel failed, but now God brings forth uh, this future king from David's line, and he makes him a king, verse 1, sit at my right hand, and this priest according to the order of Melchizedek in verse verse 4. So I think what the author of Hebrews says about these verses is is profoundly true. The author of Hebrews is correctly interpreting Psalm 110. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. So here's that dynamic again. The Lord says to my Lord, verse 1, sit at my right hand. Now verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. So I think the king is being addressed. And he's saying that God is at his right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Do you remember the warning in Psalm 2? Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in the way. The day has come. Verse 6, He will execute judgment among the nations. 
filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. You see that footnote on the, in, on the word chiefs? In, in my ESV text, it's footnote number four. You look down in the lower margin and it says, or the head. You've got the little Hebrew word rosh, which means head, which they've interpreted to mean like the heads of, you know, like the captains of the army or something like this. But if you translate it like this, if you translate it head, he will shatter the head over the wide earth. Now, again, it, it resonates with Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? And then whereas the enemies have their heads shattered in verse 6, verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So this future king from David's line, his head is going to be exalted, and he's going to drink from the brook. Why does it say that? Why does it say he will drink from the brook by the way? One of my students actually helped me with this, and he, 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 he argued for a connection with Psalm 1, which I think is correct. Uh, Psalm 1, he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. And, and, and I think that imagery is being alluded to here in verse 7 when it says he will drink from the brook by the way. So you have these, these connections in Psalm 110 to Psalms 1 and 2 as these astonishing declarations are made that the future king from David's line is going to sit at God's right hand and that the Lord has appointed him to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't know about you, but I love the stories uh, uh, that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, The Lord of the Rings. And, and it, it really, uh, I, I, I'm intrigued and enchanted by this line of kings from which Aragorn comes. And I, and it's, I think it's so, uh, it's beautiful in part because it's, it's, it's so, it smacks so much of the Bible story. It's beautiful the way you have this, this king who he's the rightful heir to the throne. And yet he's in hiding and he's, he's doing what's required of him away from center stage, so to speak. And then when the time is right, he finally comes to his city and he finally claims his throne and it's as though he unveils his glory and when he does so, you see that he has these powers that are, that are supernatural. I mean, you, you, you remember if you've, if you've read these books or seen the movies, uh, you remember how he comes to the city of Gondor at the end and uh, Faramir is, is sick in the houses of healing and there's this old woman who knows a prophecy that uh, about this, this uh, leaf, Alethas, and, and she talks about how um, the, in, in the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And then because he's needed in the city for this healing, Aragorn enters the city and, and he takes this, this uh, king's foil leaf, this Alethas, and, and as this happens, the lines of this ancient prophecy are being quoted. And, and then he heals Faramir and he calls him and when Faramir, when he, when, he, when he comes awake, he says something. I, I, I should have brought the exact quote, but he says something along the lines of, My king, you called me. I come. It's beautiful. And, and then, and then the, the word runs through the city that the king has come with healing in his hands. I mean, this partakes of the Bible because in the Bible you have these poetic statements that are talking about this future king that's going to come, and when he comes, he's going to give... Revelation 22 talks about how the tree of life is going to be on both sides of this river that's going to come out from God's throne, and, and the leaves of the tree will be for the healing 
of the nations. So our story is not sex in the city. You know, our, our, sto- our values are not the ones promulgated in uh, worldly culture. We don't live for those things. If you start thinking about this, you, you were made for the glory of God. And, and the same way you'd say right tool for the right job, you know, you don't want to take a drill and try to use it as a hammer. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to hammer something in with a drill. Wrong tool. Right job, wrong tool. When you figure out what you're for, you're for God's glory. When you figure out what your story is, we were made to be royal priests in a garden that we got kicked out of because of our sin, but we're hoping for the renewal of that garden through the work of David's Lord, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross to seal the victory, and in response to which, the hallelujahs ring as we're streaming, the nations are streaming home to Zion. We're on this pilgrimage. That's who we are. That's what we're for. And, and what happens is our thinking starts getting reconfigured. And, and we stop thinking things like, it sure, be, sure would be nice if I could uh, afford a BMW. Sure would be nice if I could build a bigger house. Sh- sh- and we stop living for the wrong things. And we start reorienting ourselves and start thinking, no, I'm here for the glory of Christ. I'm here for God. I'm here to serve people. I'm not here to... Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. That's what I'm about too. I'm not here to be served, but to serve. Let me pray for us and we'll conclude. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the way that it renews our minds. We pray that it would be effective. We pray that it would be living and active. We pray that it would divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow in us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to figure out who we are and what we're for. And we pray that you'd help us to be consistent in our living in the true story of the world, the Bible story. And Lord, we ask that you would capture our imagination by the king who will come on the white horse. And we pray that he would lay claim to our obedience and that we would be people who live under his authority and who come when he calls. We love you and thank you for your word, and we pray that it would resonate all through our minds and hearts and inform us in every way. We ask in Christ's name, amen.